Genesis chapter 1 with me, please, saints. The title of this message is Day One. Very original, I know. Day One. Subtitle, The Day God Turned on the Lights. The Day God Turned on the Lights. Genesis 1, 1 with me, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Day one, the day God turned on the lights. We've spent two weeks already in verse one. In the beginning, time, God created force, the heavens, space, and the earth matter. We have a triune God, Elohim, who is the only sufficient cause for the cosmos that we see. A cosmos that is triune in nature, space, time, and matter united one to the other. They are all intrinsically united and came into existence together when our triune God spoke them into existence. The power and the wisdom manifest in God's creation all point back to the power and wisdom of our Creator. And once again, let me remind you there are really only two basic explanations for the cosmos that we are blessed to live in, the cosmos that we see, only really two worldviews. And one is an eternal God, and the other is an eternal cosmos. And of course, an eternal cosmos is absurd. And the eternal God is glorious and logical His handiwork is evident everywhere you look as Psalm 19 declares, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. And so Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of space and time and matter. God spoke it by divine fiat into existence in a moment. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. Now, verse 2 is a parenthetical statement. It is simply speaking to verse 1 and what God created there. It's commenting on what God created. And there is no justification, hear me, no justification to plug a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. If you look to your bulletin, I've shown you what I'm talking about there. On the inside left, little illustration, the gap fiction. The gap fiction. And what you find there is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this, this gap, as if the page is ripped. And in there, we shove millions or billions of years of geological ages. And Lucifer's flood, what's that? Well, we'll get to that. It's something that didn't happen. It's a fiction. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Saints, if you start doing that with Scripture, you, you can fill anything and everything in any gap you like anywhere in the Word of God. 
The God of truth said what he meant to say, and he said it clearly. There is no gap between verse 1 and verse 2 in which we can shove the gap theory, in which we can shove billions of years. Now, the justification, the idea behind this gap theory, it says here, the earth, in verse 2, the earth was without form. In the Hebrew, that's tohu and void, bohu, tohu, wa, bohu, without form and void. The wa is the and. So tohu, wa, bohu, without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The gap theorists want to translate this, the earth became, not was, but became. And so God created it, it was glorious, there was life in it, and then Satan fell, and Lucifer's flood, and where do they get this? They get this from their own imagination and nowhere else. Lucifer's flood came and destroyed it all, buried all those critters, and that's where we get our fossil record. And so much of the catastrophic evidences that uh, we see around the globe. All of this, saints, is fiction plugged in between two verses. And I urge you to reject it as that. It is fiction. It's not good science. It's not good theology. Uh, Reject it. Now, there were good people historically who held it, who held that position. And that position allowed them to make peace with Science falsely so-called, but a science that demands billions of years to create this vast cosmos out of nothing. (laughs) And a science that demands billions of years to create life in this vast cosmos. Um, Again, against all science. All life comes from life, the law of biogenesis. And so it's a science fiction, this Spontaneous universe, this Big Bang universe. It's a science fiction. Evolution, life spontaneously coming to pass out of it, is a science fiction. And when Christians want to make peace between science fiction and Scripture, they find gaps. And suddenly, they can have a literal creation week and have peace with billions of years. And they're not making anyone happy. They're not making any Christians happy who actually believe the Word of God. And they're not making any scientists happy who disbelieve the Word of God and ascribe to the science fiction, to the Big Bang, and evolution. And so verse 2, the earth was without form, tohu and void, bohu, means simply that. That God created the heavens and the earth, and he hadn't yet finished. He hadn't yet formed it and crafted it and shaped it into its final form. And he's about to reveal day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, his creative work on each of those consecutive days. But he has not yet begun that. In your bulletin on the inside right, you'll find an article titled The Gaping Holes in the Gap Theory by Pastor John MacArthur. Let's read that together. As day one emerges from eternity, Genesis 1, 1 through 5, we find the earth in a dark and barren condition. The construction of the Hebrew phrase that opens verse 2 is significant. The subject comes before the verb as if to emphasize something remarkable about it. 
It might be translated as to the earth, it was formless and void. Here is a new planet, the very focus of God's creative purpose, and it was formless and void. The Hebrew expression is tohu wa bohu. Tohu signifies a wasteland, a desolate place. Bohu means empty. The earth was an empty place of utter destruction. The same expression is used in Jeremiah 4.23. There, Jeremiah is lamenting the doom of Israel, and he borrows the very words from Genesis 1.2. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless, tohu, and void, bohu, and to the heavens, and they had no light. That is how he describes the condition of Judah under the devastating destruction that was brought upon it by the judgment of God. What was once a fruitful land had become a wilderness. It had reverted to a state of barrenness that reminded Jeremiah of the state of the earth in the beginning before God's creative work had formed it into something beautiful. Isaiah borrows the same expression, prophesying the destruction that would come in the day of the Lord's vengeance against the Gentiles. He says their land will be turned into desolation. Quote, he will stretch over it the line of desolation, tohu, and the plumb line of emptiness, bohu, Isaiah 34, 11. So these words speak of waste and desolation. They describe the earth as a place devoid of form or inhabitants, a lifeless, barren place. It suggests that the very shape of the earth was unfinished and empty. The raw material was all there, but had not yet been given form. The features of the earth as we know it were undifferentiated, unseparated, unorganized, and uninhabited. Some have suggested that an indeterminate interval of many billions of years is hidden between verse 1 and 2. This theory is known as the gap theory. was once quite popular. According to the gap theory, God created a fully functional earth in verse 1. That ancient earth ostensibly featured a full spectrum of animal and plant life, including fish and mammals, various species of now extinct dinosaurs, and other creatures that we know only from the fossil record. Again, that's a complete fiction. There's no evidence in Scripture or out of Scripture that would support that. Proponents of the gap theory suggest that verse 2 ought to be translated, the earth became, became without form and void. They speculate that as a result of Satan's fall or some other reason, the prehistoric earth was laid waste by an untold calamity. This presupposes, of course, that Satan's fall or some other evil occurred sometime in the gap between Genesis 1 and 2, which, of course, it does not say. Then, according to this view, God created all the life forms we now see and thus remade earth into a paradise in six days of recreation. Like other old earth theories, the gap theory is supposed to explain the fossil record and harmonize the biblical account with the modern scientific theories about a multiple billion-year-old earth. Most who hold the gap theory suggest that the sun was not created on day four. It was merely made visible on that day by the clarifying of the earth's atmosphere. But the theory is accepted by relatively few today because the biblical and theological problems it poses are enormous. For example, in Genesis 1.31, after God had completed all his creation, he declared it very good, which would not be a fitting description if evil had already entered the universe. And not just entered it, if Satan had already destroyed God's creation. How is it very good in Genesis 1.31? Furthermore, if the fossil record is to be explained by an interval in the white space between Genesis 1 and 2, that means death, disease, suffering, and calamity were common many ages before Adam fell. 
Yet Scripture says Adam's sin was the event that introduced death and calamity into God's creation. By a man came death, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Through man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, Romans 5, 12. The gap theory also flatly contradicts Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. The plain meaning of the text seems to be that the barrenness described in verse 2 is simply the original state of the universe in the 24 hours immediately following its initial creation. It is not a state of desolation into which the earth fell. It is how the universe appeared in situ in its original condition before God finished His creative work. And saints, that's quite clear. That's quite clear that no one would naturally read Genesis 1 and 2 and say, oh, there's a gap there. The gap is forced there. You've got to get your wedge and your sledgehammer to force a gap between Genesis 1 and 2. There is no gap innate to the text. Genesis 1.31 was mentioned in that article. Genesis 1.31 What does it say? It says, Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. According to the gap theory, Satan's fall corrupted and destroyed God's creation, wiping out all life in it. And then that's described as very good in verse 31. No, of of course not. That's not good at all. In Exodus 20 verse 11, the the gap theory, you'll find, makes what God wrote with His finger upon the tablets of stone called the law to be nonsense. God wrote the law, Exodus 20 11, with His finger on those stones He gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 20 verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. It doesn't say in six days the Lord recreated what Satan had destroyed. It says in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so the gap theory blasphemes what God wrote with His own finger on those two tablets of stone. As you consider 1 Corinthians 15 21 for since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die verse 22 even so christ all shall be made alive the gap theory's denial of all dying in adam undermines all being made alive in christ's saints the gap theory assaults the gospel not just the genesis account of creation but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, since by man came death. Now it blasphemes that. It says that's not true. No, by Satan came death. By Satan came death. And the whole world, I mean, not just a little death, the whole world. By man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die. As in Adam all die. This is a literal truth. Scripture is building the truth of 
all who are in Christ being made alive on the truth that all who are in Adam died. You cannot reject the truth that all who are in Adam died and death came through Adam without undermining the truth that all who are in Christ shall be made alive. The gap theory is an assault upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.12 was mentioned in the article. It says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. The gap theory demands global, global, universal death before sin. And then, most importantly, Mark 10, 6 through 9, the Lord Jesus quotes Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24 as literal, factual, historical truth. And if the gap theory is true, then Jesus was wrong. He's not omniscient. He's not God. He's not a sufficient Savior. Mark 10, verse 6, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made them male and female is in quotes because that's from Genesis 1, 27. The Lord Jesus believed Genesis. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, is in quotes because the Lord Jesus believed a literal Genesis. And he didn't just believe it. He's the God of it. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the God who created Adam and Eve. He didn't just believe it because Moses wrote it. He's one with the Father and the Spirit who inspired Moses to write it accurately as the history of God creating the heavens and the earth and all life in it in six literal days. Denying Jesus Christ's interpretation of Genesis denies the omniscience, the veracity, and deity of Jesus Christ. It's a great blasphemy, saints. It's not a position one can hold. Now, I'm not saying that all those who held to the gap theory were heretics. I don't think they realized the heresy that they were ascribing to for the most part, but it leads to heresy. It is, in fact, an assault upon the gospel, an assault upon Jesus Christ himself. And so we reject it out of hand. We, we dismiss it. And again, it's, it's been around long enough that, that it's been tested and found wanting There is no justification for the gap theory. But there are still many who believe it, many who ascribe to it. And uh, what we must do is reject it. Years ago, R.C. Sproul held to a position that was uh, less than a literal six-day creationist position. He held to a position that ultimately says that Genesis is poetry and By God's grace, R.C. Sproul, like all of us, continued to grow in his walk with the Lord and his mind was sanctified and the word of God was elevated and man's philosophies and man's pseudosciences were diminished in his estimation. And ultimately, praise God, the word of God won out and he changed his position late in life and he embraced what the Bible clearly says to be the truth. And I rejoice in that. And I don't believe in a literal six-day creation because R.C. Sproul believed it. But I tell you that testimony because I respect his mind. He came out of some, somewhat of a, uh, well, he, he came out of literally a secular philosophical 
uh, training background. His start was in philosophy, and he became more and more the theologian, and then more and more the expositor, actually preaching the word, and even Pastor Sproul, not Professor Sproul, not Philosopher Sproul, but Pastor and Preacher Sproul. And thus, the Word of God ruled and reigned in his heart, and he embraced what the Word of God so clearly, undeniably says about God creating the heavens and the earth in six literal days. So let us dismiss this old error called the gap theory out of hand. Let us dismiss it and press on. The earth was without form and void and darkness was in the face of the deep. What does it mean? It means what it says. (laughs) And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters and And there are those that say this is merely referring to God the Father. I don't think so. I think it's referring to the Spirit of God. That's what it plainly says. I tend to take Scripture for what it says unless given internal reason not to. We've already covered in weeks previous that Elohim, in the beginning, God, Elohim, possesses plurality. And so Elohim, one God and yet three persons. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And we begin to see plurality when the Godhead just a few verses later, or really a verse later, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Very next verse. And then we get to verse 26, and we find the Godhead talking about creating mankind, and God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit talking within the Godhead say, let us make man in our image. And so clear plurality in the Elohim of Genesis 1.1. Thus, I have no problem seeing the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Elohim, was hovering over the face of the waters. I'll not try to tell you what hovering over the face of the waters means, except that he was hovering over the face of the waters. I read some speculations as to what hovering means, and some were talking about vibrations and whatnot, and I just thought, you know, that's... It's all pure speculation. Um, It simply says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which my mind can comprehend that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing. Then there was space, time, and matter. And the Spirit of God is, is there present amongst all that was created, all that He, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit had just created. The Spirit of God is present there. He is imminent there over his creation. Job 26.11 says, By his Spirit he adorned the heavens. Now we understand the Father was involved in creation. We certainly understand Jesus was intimately involved, foremost even, amongst the Godhead, involved in creation. But the Spirit of God was as well, which certainly makes sense when you have a triune God creating a triune creation, space-time matter creation, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all engaged in this creative act. As Job 26, 11 and Genesis 1, 2 records, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Job 26, 11, by His Spirit He adorned the heavens. Psalm 36, 33, rather, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, divine fiat spoken into existence, and all the host of them by the, the breath. In the Hebrew, that's the same word as Spirit, by the Spirit of his mouth, by the breath of his mouth. 
Psalm 104.30 says, You send forth your spirit, they are created. You send forth your spirit, they are created. So the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters on this day one, hovering over this earth that is without form and void, hovering over the waters that are dark in which no life has yet been spoken into existence, no form even spoken into existence, no molding, no shaping, no crafting that which has initially been created. Space was created, matter was created, time is created, but it hasn't been shaped yet. It hasn't been shaped yet. It's in its raw form and the Spirit is hovering over all that new creation. And then verse 3, saints, And then verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Then God said. There are those that question you, how did God create the heavens and the earth? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? I don't know. He's God. I'm not. Repent of your sins, confess Christ as Lord, and ask Him when you get there. He's revealed that He is the Creator, not how He created. He created through His divine power, with His divine wisdom. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. And that is sufficient for me to understand. Verse 3 goes a little further. Then He said, He spoke, He said, He spoke it into existence. God said, and Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 33.9, For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. How did He do it? He spoke it into existence. That's how. How did He do it? He spoke, it was done. That's how. He commanded, and it stood fast. That's how. Psalm 148.5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. He commanded, they were created. The sovereign of the universe. He was omnipotent, He was omniscient. Commanded, and they were created. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And we praise Him. We praise Him for His wisdom. We praise Him for His power. Evident in his creative act, then God said. Then God said. Interestingly, we were witnessing to this woman outside of the abortion clinic a few weeks ago who was wearing a black hooded sweatshirt with red horns on it. It might tell you her spiritual disposition. As she was contending for the murder of the unborn, And she was talking about how she was a victim and she was a foster child and it would have been better that she had been aborted and such. And we were uplifting the value of her life and the value of every human life and reasoning with her from the scriptures. And she wasn't satisfied with our level of commitment to her victim status because we also held her accountable as a sinner before a holy God and called her to repent and come to Christ and so forth. And she left somewhat angry and And uh, I called her on her inconsistency and exhorted her to repent and be saved. And she claimed to be a God as she was departing. She claimed literally to be a God. And I said, wait, you can't be both a victim 
and a God. You can't be both a victim of horrific circumstances that justify your own murder. It would have been better that you had been murdered in your mother's womb and be a God. You, that, that doesn't work. Do you see there's a disconnect there? And she did not. As she walked away, she was yelling something about uh, me not telling her that she's not a God. I don't know what she can do. Because I said, if you're a God, create something. If you're a God, speak something into existence. Because the God spoke everything into existence. The God is omnipotent and he's omniscient. And so she suffers from delusion. One, the delusion that she's a victim rather than a sinner. Two, the delusion that she's a God or a goddess rather than a creature. Or even as we we saw in uh, Romans 9 earlier in Sunday school, a thing. Will the thing say to he who formed it? I love that, right? One of the things, one of our fellow human beings is back-talking God. And God says, will the thing... Say to he who formed it, why have you made me like this? We're part of the things out there. We're creatures. He alone is the creator. And so the creator speaks his creation into existence. And it doesn't, it doesn't cause him any duress. It doesn't wear him out. He did not need to rest on the seventh day. He who is omnipotent, never tires. He never tires. He speaks it into existence. You know, I I speak for an hour, I preach, and I am worn out. I preach for several hours in the streets, and I have to think hard and contend with people over various subjects, and, and I am worn out by that. Just speaking, I didn't create anything. God created the cosmos, the words of His mouth, and... Tired not, just as fresh before as at the end of his creative act. Then God said, let there be light. He created the heavens, he created the earth, space, time, matter. The Spirit of God was hovering over this unformed, dark creation. Then God said, let there be be light. And there was light. God turned on the lights. Day one. Day one, saints. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow of turning. Everywhere in the vicinity of God, there is light. There's no shadow. There's no portion of God that is dark. There's no place in God's presence that is dark. He is the Father of lights. There's no variation in God. He is all light. Daniel 2.22 says, Light dwells with Him. Light dwells with Him with him. In the, the biblical accounts of the those heavenly visions where prophets and saints have visited the realms of glory and entered into God's presence, light is always key, a key description. Light beyond really their comprehension. They try to explain the light they're seeing emanating forth from the throne of God. And they, they can't fully explain 
and likely even comprehend in order to explain that which they are beholding. But we understand that He is the Father of lights. He has light dwelling with Him. There is no variation or shadow of turning. Pastor John MacArthur says on this, Created light represents His glory more nearly than any other aspect of creation. Like Him, it illuminates and makes known all else. Without light, all creation would remain cold and dark. So it's fitting that light was created on day one. Light was created by God and is a revelation of His glory and reveals the rest of His glories, of His creation. Without light, we couldn't behold the glories of God in His creation. The heavens declare the glories of God, and God had to turn on the lights that we could see them. In Psalm 104, verse 1, it says, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover Yourself with light as with a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Psalm 118.27 says, God is the Lord and He has given us light. He who is light has given us light. He who is light has turned on the lights. Now mind you, He hasn't created the sun and the moon and the stars yet. He just turned on the lights. You know, the the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine. You don't have any light actually. The light that you're going to let shine there is the light of Christ within you. That's what it's talking about. He who is light turned on the lights so that His glories, the glories of His creation might be seen. He had created the heavens and the earth, space, time, and matter all came into existence and it was dark. He turned on the light that the glory of His wisdom and power would be manifest. In Isaiah 45, 7, it says, I form the light. And I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. In Isaiah 60, verse 19, speaking of the the eschaton, the end of the age, Isaiah 60, verse 19 and 20, it says, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you as an everlasting light. And your God, your glory, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. The Lord will be to you an everlasting light. He who is light, he who first turned on the lights, will forever be our light. And the sun and the moon and the stars that He created for lights won't be the light of eternity, but God Himself will be the light for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. You recall in John 1, 1 through 13, as we have John declaring Jesus as the Word, Jesus as the Creator, Jesus as the life, and Jesus as the light. And the darkness of the world did not receive the light. They suppressed it. Yet those who received Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. They didn't receive Him through their own power, their own wisdom, but through the grace of God, through the power of God. It says there, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word 
was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. He is life. God is life. Innate. Innate. Thus, He can create life. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name is John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Oh, dear saints, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Jesus, who is the light of the world, turned on the lights in Genesis 1, verse 3. And then Jesus, who is the light of the world, who turned on the lights in Genesis 1, 3, came into His creation through the womb of the Virgin Mary, We just celebrated it. It's called Christmas. And thus we light up the night, do we not? We hang lights on our homes and lights on our buildings and light up trees. Lights everywhere. To remember He who is the light of the world who came into the world that was dark in sin. Verse 10, He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, Israel, And his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light of the world came into the world, but the world, including his own covenant people, the Jews, and all mankind, the Gentiles, rejected him as a whole, and yet some believed, some received, but not in and of themselves. They were saved. They were brought to saving faith in Christ, born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, by grace, through faith, not of themselves, the gift of God. Consider John 3.18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth come to the, comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God, who is light. This theme of light and God being light and those that have come to God are coming to the light and now walk into the light. This theme is throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, Satan, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness. Hear this again. This is Second Corinthians 4, verse 6. For it is the God, the God, 
who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Genesis 1-3, let there be light. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, saints, it's the same God. It's the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. In Genesis 1-3, who said, let there be light. And there was light in your dark soul. The day your spiritual lights turned on and you beheld the glory of God who is light. And you beheld the sinfulness of self. And you beheld the wonder of Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection, his glorious gospel. And you were brought by the grace of God to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, it was the same power and the same God as Genesis 1-3, who said, let there be light. Now, mind you, 2 Corinthians 4-6 is building this truth of God's power in turning our spiritual lights on unto salvation upon the truth of Genesis 1-3 being literal truth that God, on day one, turned on the lights through divine fiat, through divine declaration, let there be light. And there was light. It was dark, saints. Utterly dark. No light anywhere until God spoke light into existence. And spiritually speaking, that is true for each one of us. We are left in darkness until God speaks light into our soul. And then we are innately drawn to Christ. We we, who once hated him now desire him and love him and seek him. We who once loved darkness and fled from the light now flee from darkness to the light. It's the very power of of creation that's in us, recreating us as new creatures in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, For you were once darkness. That was your nature, darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Ephesians 5.14 says, Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. He who is light will give you light. Now, by the grace of God, he has turned the lights on, and you have seen the light of the world, and you've confessed him as your Lord, and you've followed him as such, but you must continue to follow him. Continue to reject darkness and Run into the light and embrace the light and delight in the light, dear saints, of Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality 
dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be glory, honor, and everlasting power. Amen. Dwelling in unapproachable light. First John 5, First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God is light. He who is light, turn the lights on. In Genesis 1, 3, let there be light. And there was light. He who is light, turn the lights on in your dead soul, your dark soul. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Even as he said to Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. He said the same to you. And you who were dead were made alive. You who were in darkness were made to see. 1 John 2, verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, saints. The darkness is passing away. God, who is light, will fill his cosmos with light. He's going to destroy this sin-affected cosmos, and he is going to recreate. It didn't happen between verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1, but it does happen in Revelation. He's going to destroy it all. And He's going to create a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. And there's no need for a sun or a moon, for He Himself will be our light. As Isaiah 60 foretold, Revelation foretells as well. First John 2.8 says, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The true light of Christ. Christ who is innately light. Christ who is eternal light. Who turned on the lights in Genesis 1-3, came into the world, and the light of Christ has spread around the globe, saints. It has spread around the globe. It's in his church. It's in every believer. Thus we do sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And one day that light will permeate the cosmos. Christ will rule and reign forevermore. He is our light. Revelation 21, verse 23 says, The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The glory of God. What is the light that God turned on? It's His own Shekinah glory. Some of you remember Bob Snively. Dear, dear brother. Handlebar mustache. Wonderful, wonderful saint. Exuberant in all things we did. Whether it was mowing the lawn or chainsawing trees. He did it with full gusto. Usually something or someone got hurt. But he loved the saints and he loved God and he loved the gospel. And he loved to talk about the Shekinah glory of God. And he'd be speaking up right there saying, the Shekinah glory, pastor. There's no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 
The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring... Hear me. God is manifest in His full glory. The God of James 1.17. No, no shadow, no variation or turning, no shadow. He is there in His full glory for the... Where the glory of God is manifest, where the light of God is manifest, there is no shadow. There's no darkness. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those that have come to He who is life received the light and walk in the light will be there in the light of the Lamb forever and ever and evermore. This is the God of Genesis 1-3, the God who turned on the lights, dear saints. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from darkness. Oh, the glory the glory. I'd like to talk to you about light. I'm running out of time, though. We did talk about light from Scripture. We could talk about light in general. Do a study on light sometime. There's so much to know and so much that's not yet known. So much we are still trying to figure out about light. It's not simply a light switch and then you see stuff. Oh, that's part of it. But that's just the, the beginning. When God said, let there be light, oh, we, we're just beginning to comprehend the light that God turned on. When we hear of the, the light of the Lamb, the light of God in the new heavens and new earth and no need of sun or moon or stars, we can't yet fully comprehend what that will be like. For we don't fully fathom the light that God has created, much less the light that God is. But there's one more important topic that we must get to here in this portion of Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5, one more important topic that we must get to, and what do you suppose that is? It's verse 5, verse 5. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. He saw the light manifesting His created act there, unformed, unfashioned, no life yet in it. But He saw the light there and He said that it is good. And He called the light day and the darkness He called night. Verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. We haven't even gotten to verse 5, or now we've gotten to verse 5. We haven't gotten through verse 5, and we've already dealt with multiple major theological battles. Not all have been dealt with today, but today we dealt with, between verse 1 and 2, this gap that's shoved in there. This gap fiction, not theory. And here we get to verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And we have this chorus of voices coming from churches all across Portland, 
all across the United States and all around the globe, professing to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, professing to be Bible-believing Christians who say day doesn't really mean day. You don't get five verses into God's Word before God's people are standing up to say, but it doesn't really mean what it says. God doesn't mean what He says. God just has a real hard time speaking clearly. Apparently the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, has marbles in his mouth because he can't speak clearly. The evening and the morning were the first day. No, no, no. It's a tragedy, saints. It is that a vast number of professing believers reject the clarity of God's Word, the perspicuity of God's Word. They won't let God just speak and receive what He has so clearly said. And they have motive, mind you. They have motive. They want peace with an unbelieving world. They want peace with an atheistic, naturalistic, materialistic, Big Bang cosmology, evolution worldview. But there's no peace with that worldview and with the worldview of Scripture. There's no peace with that fiction and the truth of God's Word. And there's no ability to make peace there. God has said what He has said, and He has said it exceedingly clearly. At points like this, in fact, it's clear that God inspired the text in such a way as to keep our lying mouths shut. So the question is, how long is a day? Right? The evening and the morning were the first day. But hey, we all know that the cosmos is, you know, 14 billion years old, give or take, and that life is several billion years old, and that this solar system and planet Earth in it are 4.5 billion years old, and, and so how long is this day? And mind you, this day has days that follow it, and so we're speaking to those as well. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, where man was created. How long is a day? In Genesis, how long is a day in Genesis chapter 1 verse 5 and in Genesis 1 in general? That question must be asked. You're probably familiar with the Hebrew word for day, yom, and you're probably familiar with much of what I'm going to say, but I want to encourage you to continue in the plain truth of Scripture. Unless given internal reason to not take something literally, then you should take it literally. And this is meant to be a literal 24-hour solar day. How do we know that? Because it was defined as a literal day. This word yom occurs 2,291 times in the Old Testament. And it almost always means a literal actual day. Not just, hey, back in the day, but a literal day. Nearly 2,291 times. When used in the plural form, not yom, but yamim, 845 times, it always refers to a literal day. Always. When modified by a numeral, 359 times in the Old Testament, outside of Genesis, it is modified by a numeral, and it always means a literal day. Every time, every place, Yom is modified with a numeral, meaning a number, like day one, day two. Day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, every single time without exception in all of God's word, it is a literal 24-hour solar day. 
When modified by evening and morning. This is another step. When modified by evening and morning. When yom is used with evening and morning in context, it always means literal day. And 38 times outside of Genesis 1, 38 times outside of Genesis 1, it is modified with evening or morning and clearly always means a literal day. The context of Genesis 1 is a chronology, a tight chronology. In fact, it's connected with the Hebrew word wa, as I mentioned earlier, tohu, wa, bohu, right? And, 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 and. It's meant to flow. There's, there's no gap there. there there's, no, there's no place for us to put a gap there. There's no idea of, well, that, that isn't really a historic account. It is simply an interesting portion of poetry to describe God creating stuff in a very unique way, but in no way meant to be literal. No, it reads as a literal historical account, chronologically laid down for us to understand it, as a literal historical account. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven. Exodus 20, verse 11 If we cannot understand the clarity of the Hebrew, the clarity of the text, which God went to great lengths to communicate to us, we get to Exodus, the law of God, which I've already mentioned, God wrote with his own finger on two tablets of stone. And there in Exodus 20, verse 11, what did it say? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So the the seventh day Sabbath literal seventh-day Sabbath born out of a literal six-day creation and seventh-day rest of God. No lack of clarity as to what Yom means in Genesis 1 verse 5 or the rest of Genesis or the rest of the Word of God. How long is a day? 24 hours. 24 hours. A literal day. That's how long it is. And there is no justification for anything other than that. Pastor MacArthur says, nothing in Scripture itself permits the view that the days of creation were anything other than literal 24-hour days. Only extra-biblical influences such as the theories of modern science, the views of higher criticism, or other attacks against the historicity of Scripture would lead anyone to interpret the days of Genesis 1 as long epics. In fact, old earth creationists have subjugated Scripture to certain theories currently popular in Big Bang cosmology. Cosmological theories have been imposed on Scripture as an interpretive grid and allowed to redefine the length of the creation days. Such an approach is not evangelical, and because it compromises the authority of Scripture at the start, it will inevitably move people away from an evangelical understanding of Scripture. So no matter how tenaciously the proponents of the view attempt to hold to evangelical doctrine, to accommodate our understanding of Scripture to secular and scientific theory is to undermine biblical authority." We have asked in weeks past as we were introducing Genesis, when are you going to start believing God? After Genesis 2? In Genesis 3, in the fall of man? After Genesis 3, 
in the flood, the worldwide global flood, after the global flood, the Tower of Babel, when are you going to start believing God? And when you don't start believing God till after Genesis 11, who is God really? You are. You're the God of truth, apparently, because you're deciding what is truth instead of God revealing His truth unto you and how He created the heavens and the earth and how man fell into sin and how God brought judgment upon sinful man and how God dispersed humanity around the globe. And so we bring our hearts and our minds beneath the clear revelation of God's Word because there's no justification within the Word itself not to take it as literal. We receive it as such. Hugh Ross, Pastor MacArthur continues, Hugh Ross, he's an old earth scientist, uh, professing believer. Years and years ago, long before I was a pastor, I got a hold of Hugh Ross's books and I thought, hey, this is it. Right? As a young believer... I thought, hey, this is how I, I, this makes sense. I can make peace with the Word of God and with Big Bang cosmology. I mean, I was raised in public schools. I believed those charts on the wall, and I, I hadn't made peace in my heart and mind yet with how those evolutionary charts, you know, monkey to man, how that all worked with Adam and Eve. How does that work? Well, Hugh Ross, he worked it all out for us. He made peace between the Word of God and atheistic, naturalistic, materialistic, Big Bang cosmology, evolutionist worldview. Hugh Ross, another old earth creationist, responds to this argument by pointing out that Augustine and certain other church fathers interpreted days of creation non-literally. Quote, this is Hugh Ross, their scriptural views cannot be said to have been shaped to accommodate secular opinion. In other words, Augustine and other Church fathers weren't bending to secular opinion in their rejection of a literal six-day creation. So he's saying, I'm not either. Indeed, Augustine did take a non-literal view of the six days of creation. He wrote, this is Augustine, What kind of days these were is extremely difficult or perhaps impossible for us to conceive, and how much more to say, unquote. But what Ross doesn't tell his readers is that Augustine and those who shared his views were arguing that God created the entire universe instantly, in less than a nanosecond. Indeed, outside the realm of time completely. Far from agreeing with Ross and modern science that creation was spread over billions of years, Augustine and others who shared his view went the opposite direction and foreshortened the time of creation to a single instant. They did this because they had been influenced by Greek philosophy to believe that a God who transcends time and space could not create in the realm of time. And so they went the other direction, disbelieving God's clear word, saying it must be an instant because of the Greek philosophy that was in them. And whether it's Greek philosophy compelling you or whether it's naturalistic, materialistic, Big Bang cosmology, evolution compelling you, oh, saints, you must be compelled by the Spirit of God who illuminates the Word of God. And the Word of God is clear that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days and all life in it in six literal days. And on the seventh day, He rested. More could be said, but we're out of time. We're out of time. And saints, what a glorious day. Day one. Day one. God turned on the lights. The light of the world. God who is light in whom there is no shadow or variation, God turned on the lights. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace, that you, the God who turned on the lights in this cosmos, are the God who turned on the lights in our soul. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God dwelling in light from eternity past, turn on the lights so that we might behold your glory in Genesis 1-3 and turn on the lights in each one of our hearts and minds that we might behold your glory in the gospel. We thank you. We praise you. We pray, Father, that you would grant through the power of your Spirit that we would continue to walk in the light, that we would flee from darkness and bring glory to Christ, shining his light in this world. We pray it in his mighty name. Amen.